15 through 22. We're continuing our study uh, through chapter 9 here in Hebrews. uh, And remembering from last week as we got started, uh, or two weeks ago I should say, that this is a chapter of the Bible particularly focusing on the blood of Christ. So we continue in that as we read our scripture this morning. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both on the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. A last will and testament, I think, is something that we're all familiar with. I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, maybe at one point in time had that secret hope that you were going to get a call that some aunt or uncle, great, great aunt or uncle, three or four times removed that you've never heard of or never knew, passed away. They had amassed a great fortune and you were the sole benefactor of that fortune, right? That great hope. I remember growing up. I remember seeing it on TV, I'm sure. I I don't know that I've ever actually seen the movie movie, so I I don't recommend it. But I remember seeing the movie Brewster's Millions as a movie about a guy named Montgomery Brewster who was to inherit $300 million, but he had to first spend $30 million, and he couldn't have a cent at the end of of it at the end of 30 days. And if he didn't, he wouldn't get the $300 million. It was a really silly movie, but it really played upon that desire of, oh, I have this secret inheritance that might be mine. Uh, and, and a will and testament is something that we're all uh, fairly familiar with. It's a legal document that takes effect upon a person's death. It deals with any wishes of the person after death. It deals with property they may have had. Uh, it may have special things left to specific people. And for the most part, most of us will deal with these kind of wills in our life. But scriptures record for us A will that was left to a people that was the greatest inheritance ever. I remember reading one commentary leading up to this and they referenced, uh, I don't know if any of you have ever seen or read Julius Caesar's or Shakespeare's uh, play on Caesar. And there's this moment after the conspirators where uh, his friend, and I can't remember his friend's name, I'm going to forget it right now but is trying to entice the people to rebel against the senators. And he says, hey, don't you know that in his will, Caesar has left you, it was like a year's wages for each member of Rome. And they really 
at this point incites them because it was such a great gift. And there's an inciting here. You've been given a great gift, the greatest inheritance. You have been given freedom from the condemnation of sin. And you've been given everlasting life. And this has come to you through Jesus Christ, who left it to you in his will. That you would become God's own son and heir. He died so that you might live. This is what he has left us. This is the play on words here that God has left for you, or Jesus has left for you, this inheritance. So as we come and we look at this inheritance We'll see three things. We'll see Christ's mediation, Christ's will, and Christ's blood. Christ's mediation, Christ's will, and Christ's blood. Again, as we've seen here, chapter 9 really emphasizes the supremacy of Christ's blood. And verse 15 begins to to pick up on that. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. And this therefore is coming off of what we saw last week. Because, because excuse me, his blood has been poured out for you because Jesus is able to clean your conscience, to purify your conscience from dead works to serve a living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Jesus, because of what he has done, in essence it says, serves as the function of a mediator. Someone who represents both sides of, or, or is the rep- for two sides of a, of a, a dispute. Jesus comes and mediates between the holy God and sinful man. But in order to do this, Christ first had to die. And I think to understand this, we really do have to pick up on what's going on here. Under the Mosaic law, God came to the people and he said, here's my standard, the law. Here's what you have to live to, the law. If you fail... Any part of this law, you will be cursed. And in fact, there's this moment in the Old Testament, I can't remember the name of the two mountains, but where on on Moses is reading out the curses for the commandments, and I think Israel split on these two mountains, and he reads all the curses, and they say, yes, this is the curses. And then he reads all the blessings, and the people say, yes, this is the blessings, and I may have that backwards, I don't know. But, But the point is this, they affirmed... The curses and the blessings of the covenant that God established with them. The problem is uh, that Israel, under the covenant law of Moses, failed. They failed miserably. They simply could not do it. And if it were left to the covenant law of Moses, at that point in a way, if that was the only covenant there was... God could execute punishment on the people. There was nothing in the covenant with Moses, per se, that left any room for anything else to happen. So the question is, why didn't that just happen? And the problem is, or not the problem, but the wonderful thing is, that before the covenant of Moses, there was a covenant with Abraham. 
In the covenant with Abraham, as we've seen as we've studied through Hebrews, God took the promise upon himself. I will do this for this people. And if I don't do this for this people, let what happened as he walks through these two halves of the animals, as we've seen, what happens to these animals will happen to me. God swore by himself that he would fulfill this covenant through Abraham. He alone was the guarantor of fulfilling of the fulfillment of the covenant and the blessings of the covenant. And the same descendants of Abraham are the same people under the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant condemned them. They were guilty. But God had also promised that they would be his people. And because of this, They needed a mediator. This is why they needed a mediator. And this is one of those moments, if you just stop with me for a second. This is one of the reasons, this sounds weird, but this is one of the reasons I love the Bible. Because the Bible is not a disjointed mess of individual books or individual letters. It's this wonderful, cohesive unit. It's no mistake that the covenant with Abraham comes before the covenant with Moses. It's there for a specific reason. God says, look, you're my people. I've I've got you and I'm going to take care of you. But now let me show you how much you actually need me. Let me show you how much you actually need me. So here's the law. Follow it. They can't do it. They couldn't do it. They didn't do it. He says, but I'm still your God, and you're still going to be my people. But that's one thing. It's this this great thing in the Old Testament. Think about this. As the Abrahamic covenant is being set up, as the Mosaic covenant is being set up, you're also in mind. You who are in Christ now are also in mind. You're going to be the people, descendants of Abraham, and yet you also are going to be those who cannot... Uh, follow the law and you need Jesus and we could be tempted to say well then why bring the Mosaic covenant at all why bring the law at all and the answer is this the law establishes the need of man for grace Philip Hughes says this the inability of man to keep the law's demands made unmistakably clear his guilty state before God man's great and radical need is justification But the law can never justify the lawbreaker. Despairing of his efforts to achieve righteousness by his own works, man's only hope was to turn away from himself and to seek the refuge of faith in the pardoning grace which has been promised. Thus the law, as Paul says in in Galatians, was a custodian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. We look at the law, and all we see is our inability to keep it. I would challenge anyone in this room to first say they have not ever broken one of the laws of the Old Covenant. And if for some reason you convince me of that, which you can't, go and try never to do it. It cannot be done. It cannot be not done. God gave the law to show us that we need grace. 
that salvation would come by faith alone, that we needed a mediator. And it showed us the means by which this had to happen, that there had to be blood spilt so that God's just wrath would be satisfied. And this happened in Jesus. Jesus poured his blood out for you and satisfied God's wrath. And now he looks upon us with blessing and peace without compromising his own nature. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have a mediator who is Jesus. He has mediated our way to come into God's presence so that now our sins do not keep us from fellowship. Sin was the problem that we could do nothing with. But Jesus, Jesus paid it all. Now we have the wondrous reality of what he's done for us. So we don't have to try to work our way back. We don't have to try to earn our way back. We don't have to trust in any external means. We can wholly trust in the name of Jesus who has come and who has left for us this wonderful gift in his will. This is our second point, Christ's will. Uh, There's a play on words here in this text. Over and over again, we see this word will being used. For where will is involved, uh, a death, says in verse 16. Verse 17, for a will takes effect only. And go on, and there's several points where it says will here. There's a play on words going here that we miss uh, if we don't know the Greek. The Greek word here is diatheke. And it is an interchangeable word that can mean either will or covenant. Largely, the reason we call the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the New Testament is because of this verse of of the Bible. Uh, The implication here being for where there is a will and testament, where there for a will and testament takes effect only at death. uh, This is what it's talking about here. And so we have this New Testament and the Old Testament But the play on words here is, is that something new is going on. We could change this out for 16, for where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. It's this play on words that there's a will coming that's been established in covenant. And in 15, it says this, it talks about a covenant from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. But there's something new now that is going on. So what do we learn about the will that Jesus has for us? What do we know about it? We begin with some of the basics. When does a will kick in? When does a will take effect? When someone dies, right? First and foremost, we see that the will that Jesus has for us took effect when he died. And there's more to that. And he rose. So what did he leave us? When Jesus passed away, what did he leave us? 
And to answer this, we have to go to the cross. What was going on on the cross? That's Jesus who, by the way, perfectly lived according to the Mosaic law, perfectly did everything that was supposed to be done in it. As he hung there, guiltless, as he who was without sin was made sin for us, he purchased and secured for us redemption. We now share in what he inherits. So when you talk about, even as we go through the New Testament, we inherit membership in his kingdom. We're even told that we get to rule with him. We are now sons and daughters. We now get the eternal life that he gets. We share in all of this. If you've ever wanted to get that call that you are the long lost descendant of some rich aunt or uncle, this is it. This is it. Apart from Christ, what you have to look forward to is the curses of the Mosaic law, death, separation from God. But in Christ, we have life. We have a place in heaven. We have a home with God forever and ever. We have a wonderful, wonderful personal inheritance that comes through our relationship with God. We may someday hope, and my children, don't hold your breath, to leave an inheritance for those who come after us. We may hope that someone may leave something for us. Even if it's a something small, something that serves as a memory. But all of these things, all of these things pale in comparison to the inheritance that we are given in Christ. We share in that resurrection body that he has. We share in eternity. We share in the new heavens and in the new earth. There's nothing that can compare with what we gain in Christ. Understanding that it could never have been possible if Christ did not die for you. Christ died so that we might live. He mediates and brings forth our inheritance. And how did he do this? Again, we are reminded. Verse 18. Therefore, again, because where will involved the death of the one who must made it must be established, and because the will only takes effect at death, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. The covenant that God has established with his people is made in blood. 
Bill Palmer Robertson, who wrote a book called Christ the Covenants. It's a really good book. If you ever want to study or learn about what covenant theology is, it's a, a really good uh, book. I didn't write his quote down. It's kind of off the fly, so if I mess it up, I'm sorry. But he says this, in, in paraphrasing, a covenant is a, a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Christ has made covenant with us through his own blood that he administered to reconcile us to God. All that happened leading up to Jesus happened with Jesus in mind. And we see this looking at 19 through 21. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. So you can imagine after this is going on and the people, Moses takes this scarlet wool hyssop branch looking thing. He dips it in the blood. And what does he start doing? He starts sprinkling it. The closest thing we probably get today is, I think in some Catholic ceremonies, they have like a a thing that sprinkles water. It's very similar to that. He sprinkles the blood on the people. He sprinkles the blood on the book. He sprinkles the blood everywhere on the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Everything. Blood gets sprinkled on. It represents that the penalty for for breaking covenant is blood. One commentator says this, his blood was meant to impress in them that sin cannot be set aside even by a loving God without a death occurring. The blood of the covenant showed the penalty for breaking the covenant. Jesus, or God, because of who he is, he is perfectly holy, cannot simply go, I know you sinned, but it's okay. We're just going to put that aside. He can't. It would be against his holy nature. He says, no, there's going to be a cost. Let me show you what this cost looks like. And so he gives us the Old Testament. He gives us this everything covered in blood. But it points us forward to Christ in the new covenant. And the same commentator goes on to say this. By sprinkling the blood of the animal on the people, Moses is saying that God would accept that substitution as a temporary reprieve until the true substitute would come. Because here's the thing, when when you talk about the Old Testament and the Old Testament people, how were they saved? And the answer to that is by the blood of Jesus. All those who came before were saved. Moses and Aaron and all those who were in Christ were saved by the blood of Jesus. But they were given this temporary sign to say, look, this is going to, don't overtake this, but hear me. This is going to get you there. This is going to bridge the gap. This is going to, and it had more weight than that. Don't, 
I don't want you to hear me say it didn't have weight. It had more weight than that. But that's what it meant to serve. As something that says, look, we're pointing forward. Don't get so caught up in what you're doing now that you don't miss the point that this isn't enough and you need something better. We have to get this into our hearts. Once we have sinned against God, there must be shed blood. But it's a price you cannot pay. And live to tell the tale. It would utterly destroy you. By faith, they trusted in the blood of the sacrifice. A sacrifice that pointed them to Christ. And by faith, we look back to Jesus, to the blood of his sacrifice. If you want to be forgiven, then you need Jesus. So that we are now heirs. We are now heirs through his blood. So what does this teach us about him? What does it teach us about our relationship with him? It shows us that salvation is a gift. An inheritance by its nature is something you are given. You didn't earn it. It's freely given. We receive fellowship with God as this gift that our sins have been forgiven. We escape the penalty for transgressing the law. We enter into the riches of his glorious kingdom. How do we respond to that? How are we going to respond to this knowledge? Because in many ways, brothers and sisters in Christ, I have not said anything to you today is probably a surprise to you. And in fact, in many ways, this is what we've been talking about for weeks and weeks and weeks now. As the writer of Hebrews has been talking about uh, the Old Testament and it's how it's inferior to the New Testament, how Christ is superior and we've looked and we've considered the temple and we've considered Christ as the new high priest. And we've seen again and again that he has made mediation and sacrifice for us. And we can be tempted to sit here and go, yeah, this is good. I like this. I've, I've heard this. But I think behind that spirit is a bit of lethargy and familiarity that leads us to not having a proper perspective of what's going on. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were dead and though while the majority of us, I, I don't, we, we suffer, each of us suffers in our own way, and we have worries and we have concerns. I'm not sure how many of us, and I, I don't want to say blanket statements, but how many of us, though, have 
truly, and maybe we've had moments, but truly feared for our life. We live in a country where, for the most part, we have freedoms, and we could sit here all day and argue the, well, we're restricted or not restricted in this way. But when you look at the history of the world, we have an unprecedented freedom. When you look at the New Testament church, they did not have unprecedented freedom. And in fact, to believe this often meant death, violent death. And I, I, I fear that sometimes the church's knowledge of Christ has become not impersonal, but dulled. That the God of the universe, who is the same God who spoke, all, he has power beyond all we can imagine if we're left to ourselves, is going to levy the full weight of his punishment against us. And Christ steps in and says, I will take that on myself. So that you don't have to. And our response to that should be joyous. We should lift out of our seats yelling, Amen. Thanks be to God for what He has delivered me from, to what He has given me in Christ. We should have a desire in our hearts to rid ourselves of all sin of all unholiness. We should have a desire to be like Jesus, to rise up against the enemy, to go forth proclaiming this good news. It is a matter of life and death. And our worries become Our insecurities become the main thing that drive us. Our worries, what will that person think about me if I go tell them that they need Jesus? What if I say something wrong in telling that person that they need Jesus? Or maybe we do this, maybe we go, yes, I love Jesus, but my love for Jesus doesn't extend to X, Y, Z, to the value I have in sleeping in, to the importance I place wherever it may be. What is keeping us, and and this is true of all of us, what is keeping us from fully surrendering ourselves to Jesus? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And those who are plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty 
stains. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have a new identity. You are a new creation. You have a new allegiance. You have a new purpose in all that you do. Christ's blood, his death has made all the difference. Why seek after anything else? Christ's blood is sufficient for you. He has mediated life for you. He's provided for you a precious inheritance. Amen? Amen. It is everything. It is everything. And there's nothing apart from it. He has done what we could not do. He has mediated for us between between us and God. And he has satisfied the just wrath and punishment that we deserved. And he has left for us a wondrous and precious inheritance. One that is beyond all we could have hoped for and imagined. And he accomplished this through his shed blood. He has cleansed us of all guilt of sin. Yes, uh, I know I quoted it last week, but would you be much whiter, much whiter than snow? There's power. There is power in the blood of the Lamb. He has done this for you. So we come now with confidence. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, right now, right here, right now, or if you're in Christ Jesus, that's who you are. You are much whiter than snow. You are God's own son and daughter. If you do not know Jesus this morning, or if you're playing at Christianity, then know this. This inheritance is not for you if you do not come to him. In faith and repentance... We, you stand condemned before a holy God. Come and hear this message. Put off everything else and turn, run, flee to him who can save your soul. And let us come and know that we have been purified that we have forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. Would would the message of the gospel never become dull? But would we on a daily basis cry out even as we are about to as a, at the end here saying praise God from whom all blessings flow praise him all creatures here below praise him above ye heavenly host praise father son and holy ghost for once I was lost but now I'm found once I was dead but now I am alive Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen.